So we're in Acts 11 today. If you want to turn there with us, it's on page 635 in the Bible in front of you. Uh, if you want to turn there with us. Uh, we were in Acts 11 last week and the first part. And last week what we saw was how religious education, this is how I'm, I'm summarizing it, how religious education and indoctrination isn't always the same as the gospel. Notice I didn't say that it's never the same. I said that it's it's not always the same. I went to a Christian school. I, I went to a public high school. So from like kindergarten through eighth grade, I was in a Christian school. I went to public high school, was very active in my church, went to a Christian college after I had tried uh, several different career paths to avoid God's call in my life. He finally captured my attention at, at 21 and, uh, and I went to a Bible college. So believe me, I am an advocate. Every month, my money going to AES student loan repayment is proof that I believe in Christian education. So I'm not anti that. But what we saw last week was how religious education and indoctrination isn't always the same as the gospel. Just because you can repeat back religious things on cue like Pavlov's dog doesn't mean that they've made their way into your heart. And that's what we saw last week. We saw that the symbol that really came to the surface was this symbol of circumcision, and it, was a, it set the Jews apart as a symbol. Now, if you read back through the Old Testament, you'll see that there's evidence to support their mindset. If you were to segment Scripture down the way they did and the way that a lot of us still do today, it, you, can, you can get this book to say what you want it to say. You can get this book to say what you want it to say. But that's not why it was gifted to us by a gracious God. It was gifted to us because it already says what God wants it to say. So unless you are able to supersede God in the authority department, and spoiler alert, you're not, then these words have to be taken in their full context. Now what we saw happen last week was that their Old Testament is full of cautions saying that these signs would be perfected in the Messiah. So yes, you should perform the circumcision and yes, you should obey these laws and yes, you should obey these guidelines and yes, you should perform sacrifices this way using these animals. Those were all legit and the people of God were not wrong for obeying them. Where, they, where the plan went awry is that the Old Testament, while it's commanding these things, is also telling God's people to watch for signs for the Messiah because when the Messiah comes, He's going to perfect these laws. He's going to perfect it. That a better way is coming. And they didn't recognize the Messiah because they were too concerned with the symbols and they thought their obedience to the symbols is what saved them. And they also believed because they were so good at obedience that salvation was only for them. So when salvation started to reach into a different people group, it threw them for a loop. And they challenged Peter with it. And Peter says, listen, I'm just going to tell you what, uh, what happened to me. I'm just going to tell you. I'm going to do what Jesus told me to do from the beginning. And that's to be a witness. So that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to tell you what happened. 
I did exactly as I was instructed. I came here. In the meantime, God had worked through this Gentile family, and they did exactly as God told them to do. Our paths converged at this guy's house over a meal. They came to an understanding who Jesus is, and they were spouting the gospel back to me better than I could. Signs and wonders were taking place, and the only other place I ever saw that was in the upper room in Acts 2. Peter didn't say Acts 2 because it didn't really exist at the time. But at the moment of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit came, that's the last time I saw the Spirit move like that. Same exact thing happened in Cornelius' house. So tell me, those of you who are telling me I'm wrong for being here, tell me, who am I? to stand against the Spirit of God. Mic drop, right? Like, like, Peter's like, if you have a good argument for this, then I'm all ears. But I was faithful to God. They were. The Spirit met them here. I have no reason to believe that they're not believers. Now, this mindset, that's where we left off last week. So these people believe that salvation was only for them and they're wrestling with this. Now we know on this side of history, that just isn't the case. We know that the gospel was for all mankind. But they didn't have the benefit of history like we do. Their history told them that it was only for the Jews. And so this is rocking them and they're wrestling with it. Now this is where we pick up the story in Acts 11 starting at verse 19. So if you're following along, that's where we're at. Again, it's on page 635, Acts 11. We're going to start at verse 19. I'm going to read through uh, verse 26. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose, for he was a good man. Full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people, and in Antioch the disciples were first called Christians. Okay. Now, when, I, when, I'm, when I'm taking my notes, just so you know my prep, uh, I, read, I read the passage maybe 40 times, and, and while I'm reading it, I'm jotting down notes on my computer. Those notes eventually become a manuscript. That manuscript is probably unreadable to the regular person. It's, it's riddled with spelling errors. There's hardly any punctuation. It, and then on, on, uh, I read over that on Thursday before I leave. I try to get that down to a spot where I'm comfortable and confident that when I come in on Sunday morning, if everything fell apart, I could take that and present the message. But in a perfect world... I sit down on Sunday morning, I get here early, and I just pray. I have the place to myself. I come in here, I sit in some of the chairs, I pray for you, I pray for our time together, and God usually hits me with different thoughts. And then that sermon becomes handwritten chicken scratch that I bring up with me. So if you were to come up here and read these, maybe you would be like, that's it? That's the sermon? That's the sermon, folks. How can I turn that into 45 minutes? Just watch. 
<clears throat> so as I'm writing my notes this morning, the first thing that comes to mind is I read this passage, uh, Acts 11, 19 through 26, is, is this is awesome. This is an awesome moment in the life of the church. This is an awesome realization. There's so many cool things happening. So let's, let's just pick this apart before we get into some of the real meat of this. Let's just watch what's happening because there's a whole lot here, and I think it's just it's amazing. Now, if you remember back in uh, Acts chapter 8, we see that Stephen preaches this message, and then he is he's put to death for it. And this is the first time that we revisit that moment. In verse 19, it says, Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen. And it's like, oh, yeah, that happened. You remember back, back when that happened? It said that the, the believers scattered because of the persecution, right? Well, now we're starting to get a glimpse of where they ended up, where they went. We don't get specific names here. We know that Philip was one of these guys, right? We saw that before. It says that they traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. Okay, it's interesting, and it's important for us to look at because there's a a reinforcement of what we just said, this cultural expectation that the word of God was only for the Jews, and it was not for anyone that wasn't born into, into a Jewish family and into the promises of God. And there was a misunderstanding about how the Messiah, Jesus, coming He grafted in the promises of God. He was the new covenant. There was a new covenant made in Jesus' blood. And from that point on, it's a game changer. So there are those who, who, who traveled Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, and they're still doing the work of the Lord. They're still doing what Jesus told them to do, go and make disciples, be my witnesses. They're still doing that, but they're only doing it to people that are Jews. Verse 20, but there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. And I read that, and it blew my mind. Because that means that my whole life, I believed that Cornelius or the Ethiopian eunuch were really the first Gentiles to understand the gospel. That's what I believe. That's the timeline in my mind. And it was after Cornelius that really the the whole gospel exploded forward. But according to this, when Stephen was martyred and and the church scattered out, there were people that were in Antioch preaching to the Gentiles, and God's hand was on them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. So this is happening already, right? Right? In verse 22, the report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem. And who do they send? Good old Barnabas, right? Barnabas seems like the guy who's so nice, he'll never say no to you. Hey, Barnabas, can I have some money? Sure. Hey, Barnabas, will you sell your lot and give me the money? Sure. Hey, Barnabas, will you travel to Antioch and check this out? Sure. Barnabas is the guy that understands that the call of God in his life is to be the hands and feet of Jesus, and he just shows up. I never see this guy say no. But they send him, and I think that's important to look at because when they see that the gospel is expanding out to places that are unknown to them, the utmost parts of the world, right? And they don't completely understand this whole thing. They want to send someone that they trust and someone that they know understands the gospel and the movement of the gospel. So who do they send? Barnabas. It's an awesome thing. Barnabas is sent. In 1998, 
I graduated high school, and, uh, and I went on a missions team trip. It was called Operation Barnabas. Now, if you grew up in what was then known the Grace Brethren Church, now it's called Cares Fellowship, if you grew up in that, you knew what Operation Barnabas was. You knew two things. You knew that you went to BNYC in the summer, which is now known as Momentum, and you knew that you wanted to go on Operation Barnabas, or OB. So, and, and when I graduated high school, I went on this thing, and this was a six-week tour. We got on a big blue school bus, and we went to churches and communities all over a certain part of the United States. There were three teams a year I went on. My team went to Florida. So we started in Maryland, South Carolina, and then Georgia, and then all around the coast of Florida. It was a horrible way to spend your summer, right? Uh, we did ministry in all these different places and did service projects and things, but the reason I bring that up is that it's named Operation Barnabas because he was a son of encouragement. He went, and everywhere he went seemed to be an encourage. He used to be an encouragement, an encouraging presence. So that's why they named this team Operation Barnabas because everywhere we went, the goal was to be an encouragement. And one of the first things they teach you is Acts eleven twenty three and twenty four. When Barnabas arrived and saw the evidence of the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. He was a good man full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great many people were brought to the Lord. Acts eleven twenty three and 24. Now picture that with a choir up on stage, and we're all saying it together. It was a pretty cool thing, but I'll never forget that. This week, as I was studying through this again, I saw something in this passage that just it turned the narrative in a better direction for how I understood Barnabas. I pictured Barnabas as this in this moment. I pictured him showing up, seeing that people came to know Christ, seeing that people were, were, were coming to know Christ, and he just sat down with them and said, bully to you. I'm going to go get Paul. That he came in and encouraged them and, and uh, was an encouragement to them, and then, then he went and got Paul. And if I'm being completely honest, I don't even know if I, if I really thought through what that meant, that he went and got Saul. I just know that Barnabas arrived and he saw the evidence of the grace of God. And in ESV, I like how it says it better. I, I memorized that in NIV whenever I was 18. ESV, in verse 23, it says, when he came and saw the grace of God. NIV says when he saw the evidence of the grace of God. But in, in ESV, it says when he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad. And he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with stead fast purpose, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. So here's what we see Barnabas do. Barnabas is coming into this, and he's telling them, you have come to know Christ, and that is a beautiful thing. Listen, don't let anyone lead you astray. Don't let anyone tell you that this isn't real. Don't let anyone tell you that you have to come in and, and you have to obey all the rules now to stay a Christian. And he's preaching and he's teaching and he's exhorting them, and he's, which means he's challenging. He's coming up against their version of truth and giving them real truth. He's, he's exhorting them. He's challenging them. He's, he's preaching to them. He's teaching them. He's encouraging them. And it says a great many of people were added to the Lord. 
So Barnabas is being used. He's coming in to just scope out the situation. And what he sees is a fruitful opportunity for the gospel to expand. So he takes that opportunity and he teaches and he invests and he stays with these people, by the way. Remind you that that's what he's doing. He goes and he stays with them. He lives with them. He's teaching them in their world. That's where he goes. And he stays. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So here's what's happening. At the end of that verse, at the end of verse 24, it says Barnabas, let's just recap, Barnabas is teaching them to stay true to the Lord. He's, he's teaching them who the, who the Lord is. And this says a great many people were brought to the Lord. Here's how I picture what happens next because it doesn't tell us this. It just tells us what he does next. It doesn't tell us how he got to that conclusion. But he sees this horde of people that for the first time in their life, they understand what true love feels like because they've understood and they received the grace of God. They're not living under any kind of tyranny. They're not living under this, this, this darkness that tells them that the grace of God or the forgiveness of God is not attainable to them because of what family they were born into. They're realizing this for the first time. It's blowing their minds. More and more people are being added to this. And Barnabas scopes out the situation and says, this is fruitful opportunity for discipleship, but I am not equipped for this task. So what does he do? Good old Saul, right? Now Saul, Saul has been sent back to Tarsus. Do you remember? If you go back to chapter 9, we see Saul come to know the Lord. We know that Saul was the persecutor of the church, and then he comes to know Christ. And then he starts preaching, and then there's a plot to kill him. So to save him, the followers of Jesus round him up, and they send him back to Tarsus, and he's there for three years. And in those three years, he is meeting with Christ personally and, and being taught. There's a lot there that needs to be unpacked, but I can't do it this morning. <clears throat> so we're waiting, right? There's, there's a part of us that we know how this story ends. We know how Saul, what kind of impact Saul has on the church, but we haven't really seen it yet. And so there's a part of us that should, at least, have some kind of anticipation of, like, when is that going to happen? When is that going to happen? Any Marvel movie fans in the room? Okay. I'm sorry for the rest of you. But uh, there's a scene in Infinity War where you know Thor's got a new hammer. He's got an axe. You, you know he does. And you know he's going to come. And you're, I'm waiting for it, right? So I'm watching the movie for the first time. And, uh, and the, the Avengers are taking a beating. They're, they're taking a beating, and it's looking pretty grim. And all of a sudden, this blue light comes out of the sky, and everything just, a wave just, just throws the enemy away, like throws them away like, like balled up paper. And all of a sudden, you see Thor's, Thor's axe spinning around and taking them all out. And literally, the first time I saw it, I was like, Yes! And it was that moment where, like, I knew he was going to come on the scene. I knew it was going to happen. I knew it was going to be big. I just didn't know how they were going to do it. And then whenever they do it, I'm like, yes! You better watch out now because Thor is here. That's what I wanted to be like. You're going down now, right? 
That's sort of how we should feel about Saul in this moment. He, he, left, he left for three years. He's in Tarsus, and we haven't seen him. We haven't seen him do anything. We know what he's going to do. We know he's going to lay the smack down on some of these churches and some of these people who don't understand the gospel and are trying to make it something that it was never meant to be. We know he's going to do that. We know that his hand is going to be used to write two-thirds of the New Testament. We know that's going to happen, but we haven't seen how it starts yet. Guys, this is how it starts. This is a big moment. This is, this is dare I say, bigger than Stormbreaker coming down in form of an axe and taking out the enemy. Stormbreaker's name is Thor's axe, by the way. I'm sorry if you didn't know that. I really feel bad for some of you if you didn't know that. Maybe you just think I'm a nerd. I don't know. I'm okay with it either way. Anyway, it wasn't in my notes. Stick to your notes, Adam. So here's what happens. Barnabas checks out the scene. There are people that are coming to know Christ in mass form. There is... There's a big following now of the gospel amongst Gentiles. And Barnabas scans the situation and says, I am not equipped for this task. So what does he do? Verse 25, so Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for, look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. Sometimes I want to find Luke and I want to be like, dude, you really, you really, that's all you're going to say? That's all you're going to say? Like, this is Saul we're talking about. And all you're going to tell us is that Barnabas went to look for him. He found him. He brought him to Antioch. There's, a, there's, there's probably like a Peter Jackson trilogy in there somewhere, and that's all you're going to tell me. There's a whole lot that happens here. He, 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 takes, he goes into Tarsus. He looks for Saul. He finds him, and he tells Saul, this is what's been happening for three years. And imagine Saul's blown mind when he sees how far the kingdom of God has gone in a good direction. How many people have come into the kingdom of God? How many people are growing in their faith? How many churches are meeting people that are growing in their faith and growing in understanding the gospel and how far reaching the gospel is? And he says, I need your help because as the gospel goes into the Gentiles, we're, this is far beyond me. But you've got to see it, Saul. You've got to see it. You're the man for the job. And it says, <clears throat> second part of verse 26, for a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch the disciples were first called Christians. But let's camp out on that first part for a second. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. Last time I went on a missions trip, I, I, I heard uh, a Haitian say something to me heartbreaking. It really shook me up. Now, I, I'm going to preface by saying I think short-term mission trips are a good thing. I'm going to preface it by saying that. But he said, the ones who really help us are the ones who choose to stay. And I thought, how many thousands of people every year come into Haiti for a week and do some good things and then go back home. And they share stories about what they saw and what they did. And I think that stuff's good. But here's this guy saying the ones who really help us are the ones who choose to stay. Now, I only say that because when Saul got into Antioch and saw the believers growing in their relationship with God, he said, 
I'm going to live here for a while. I'm going to stay here. And Barnabas, you're going to stay with me. And what did they do? They didn't just live there to live there. They didn't get to Antioch and say, this place is beautiful. It would be a cool place to live for a year. When they got there, for a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. Here's what's happening, okay? This is a foundational passage of Scripture. I would, I would challenge you to read through this and ask yourself where you fall in this story as many times as possible, and then write down the questions and wrestle with the questions and do some business with God through this because this is huge. The followers of Jesus are doing two things. They shared the message of what Jesus did for them. That's called evangelism. Evangelism is so complicated. We've turned it into a business. We've turned it into going to evangelism training or paying for video feeds to come into your church to train people on how to do evangelism. And if that wins people to Christ, I'm all for it. But I tend to think it's not that complicated. Here's what Jesus said whenever he goes into heaven. He says, you will be my witnesses. We've talked about this before. The literal term that he's using is the same word that we still use for being a witness in court. If you're called, let's say you notice you're, you're at the scene of a traffic accident and it makes that, that whole mess makes its way into the court system. You get subpoenaed to show up at court. Your job is to stand or sit in that stand. And, and why do they call it a stand if you sit, by the way? Anyway. Your job is to be in that moment. And when the judge or the attorneys ask you what you saw, you are to be a truth telling witness as to what you saw and experienced. That is the exact same term that Jesus uses when he says, you will be my witnesses. You will go into the world and you will tell the world what you saw and what I did for you. That's what you will do. That is evangelism. Evangelism is easy. Evangelism is us telling the people that we talk to what Jesus did in our lives. That's it. That's all it is. It doesn't have to be more complicated than that. And that's what's happening here. The other thing that we see happening here is that Saul does two things. He meets with the church and he teaches the church. He meets with the followers of God and he teaches them. That's discipleship. That's discipleship. Saul didn't show up, preach a big message, and say, Go out to the merch table and buy my book. That'll teach you everything you need to know about being a follower of Jesus. And then go to the next town and do the same thing. He showed up. He brought the gospel. He taught the gospel. And he lived with these people for a whole year. We overcomplicate this church thing too much. We overcomplicate it. You know, we have in the, in the beginning parts of this, throughout the, the whole history, early church, what we have? We have people that understood they were broken and a mess without Jesus. They receive Jesus' grace. They receive the gift of salvation. And then they tell other people what they got. And they lead other people to it. And as they deepen in their faith, there are people called the apostles that teach them. 
And they would gather for the apostles' teaching because there were enough people that needed to hear the truth and to be equipped in it that they would, the apostles would say, okay, gather the body, gather the church, and we will open the pages of God's word and we will equip a huge crowd with it. But we will also be living in the same town with these people and we will sit with them for meals and we will talk about this and we will, we will, we will go through it together. I'm not going anywhere is what Saul said. Saul and Barnabas both. So I'm going to teach you up here. I'm going to teach you, but I'm also going to meet with you down here. I'm going to do life with you. When we go to the store, I'm going to be there. And when you have to go get something fixed, I might be there. And whenever you are walking down this pathway just to go for a walk, I might be doing the same thing. Why? Because we live in the same community. And you're going to be a witness to what Jesus did for you and we're going to preach the word of God. And when you funnel it down, that's what Jesus called the church to do. It's unfortunate that what we do is we build a building, and then we do everything we can to market that facility to get more people to come in to what we're doing in the building. And we call that a win. And we do exactly what first century church did. We indoctrinate people with information so like Pavlov's dog, they can spout it back in the right moment. You get the right cue, you can say it. You get the right cue, you know exactly what to do. Your mind has been trained. Your heart, not necessarily. And so we commit ourselves to a program or we commit ourselves to a time schedule, or we commit ourselves to an activity that happens at a facility. But we're not necessarily committed to Jesus. And that, to me, is a shame, because the formula that Jesus gave us is really not that hard. But nowhere in here do we see overeducated people or spiritually saturated, educated people high and loftily telling everybody else what they're screwing up and how they need to come back. The apostles aren't saying, we've built this facility and you need to come back here every week so that we can make you holy. That's not the formula of the church. The formula of the church is we're going to meet where we can meet, when we can meet. We're going to stick to the Word of God, and when we leave, we're going to keep telling the story of what God is doing. We're going to see how far-reaching we can get this thing going, because that's exactly what Jesus told us to do. Most of the apostles were uneducated people. Saul's the first educated person we have on the scene. He says, go and be witnesses Make disciples. Listen, discipleship takes time, people. You can't commit to a three-week discipleship plan at your church and then get a certificate that says you're a disciple now. That's not how it works. Discipleship takes time. Saul noticed that. So he decided to live with these people for a year because to make disciples, he knew he had to get in the trench and live with them and do life with them because it's the only way disciples are made. That's how Jesus did it. Jesus said, come and follow me, and I will make you a fisher of men. I will, I will live with you. Whenever I sleep with my head on a rock for a pillow, you will be there beside me. When we're going into a town and we're hungry and we're just hoping that somebody there shows mercy on us and provides a meal for us, you'll be with me. 
When someone needs something and I model for you how to care for their needs, you'll be with me. And when I'm off the scene and I say, do what I did, this is how the world will know you're my disciples, by how you love one another. Do what I did. That's what Jesus says. Nowhere in there do we see Jesus say, guys, we're starting to see a little dip in people's interests. We need to come up with a pretty good splashy marketing campaign to get people into our church because we spent a lot of money on those smoke and fog and light machines. And if we don't get more people to come in and put more money in the pews, put more money in the, in the offering plates, then we're not going to be able to afford all this stuff. We got to get people to come in. So we got to get more people to come in so that we can pay for the stuff we bought to get them to come in. When I say it like that, doesn't it sound really, 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 really illogical? Now, again, it's going to sound so judgmental. And I'm really trying hard not to let my own personal biases come out here. If people are coming to Christ, I don't care what tools are used for it to happen. But when Barnabas sold a field and laid it at the apostles' feet, all the proceeds of it, and said, use this to further the kingdom, I don't see anywhere in Scripture that they spent it on anything other than providing for the people who were in need so that they saw the hands and feet of Jesus at work. And they leveraged those finances to point people to the cross. We overcomplicate this stuff. And Saul came in and said, listen, we're not going to do this the way that I was taught to do it. I'm not going to let myself lead anybody in this room to believe that being the church means you have to do it a certain way every time all across the board. That's not what this is. I'm not going to indoctrinate you with information. I want to model truth for you. So I'm going to live here. I'm going to set up shop here for a year at least I'm going to live here with you because I don't want to establish a mindset in you or some kind of indoctrinated truth in you. I want to just establish the gospel here. I want to see it established. You have it. Let's deepen that understanding, and then you can take other people along with you in the depth of mining and deeper what this is. That's discipleship. That's what Jesus has called our lives to look like, leveraging every second, every penny, everything we've got to grow the kingdom. If you have it, no matter what it is, a talent, a treasure, time, it has been a gift to you from God above as leverage to grow the kingdom. That's the only reason you have it. It's the only reason you have time. It's the only reason you have talent. It's the only reason you have, you, the only reason you have treasure. It's to steward those things to grow the kingdom. Some of us have been entrusted with much of one or all of those things. Some of us maybe haven't been entrusted with as much as what the world would say is a lot. But it doesn't matter. That's why we have it. And Saul gets that. So he moves into Antioch and he says, now, this is how we make disciples. So we're going to teach the word. We're going to leave that as our focus. We're going to make sure that anytime we're together, we focus in on what this says it doesn't matter to us what our personal opinions are or what I think is right or what I feel is right. We're going to go back to the Word of God. We're going to let Him tell us what's right. And then we're going to do that. We are to go and be His witnesses. Now, here's the good news. 
Here's the really good news. On top of the already awesome good news that Jesus came to save us from the mess of sin, the good news is that if maybe this is the first time you're hearing kind of this kind of stuff about stewardship, or maybe you're thinking to yourself, I kind of stink at this, or maybe you're thinking, I don't even know where to start, there's a beautiful truth about God, and it's that His mercies are new every morning. I think if I were to look at the track record of my life being redeemed by the blood of Jesus, I have failed at making disciples far more often than I have succeeded. Because making disciples is something I have to choose every day. I'm going to do, this is why I live. I live to be a witness to what Jesus has done and to make disciples. That needs to be the heartbeat of why I get up in the morning. That needs to be the heartbeat of why I work hard to make money because I want to use that money to further the kingdom somehow. I'm going to give my time to this thing or this organization, and I'm going to use that as leverage to invest the gospel into the people that I get to spend time with. That's what we do. Our hobbies, our time, our talents, our treasure, everything is an opportunity to be a witness to what Jesus has done for us and to make disciples. That's why we do it. And God is so gracious that in the process of doing our lives, He allows us to enjoy it. He allows us to enjoy the things that He allows us to have. He allows us to enjoy the hobbies that we have and the ways that we spend our time and the places that we go. He allows us the privilege of enjoying those things. It's not a mundane, like, have-to task. We find joy in who Jesus is. We find joy in what He's redeemed us from. And we want to share that wealth with others, whether that's our time or our talents or the things that He's blessed us with. His mercies are new every morning. His mercy is more We need to find ourselves running to God instead of saying, oh, woe is me, I'm a terrible person or I'm a terrible follower of Jesus or I have never done that or I don't want to do that. Instead of those postures, we need to just find ourselves running to the feet of Jesus and receiving his mercy, grace, and forgiveness and and just keep asking him, what does it look like for me to make disciples? What does it look like for me to, to, to be a witness? What does it look like for me to invest in my community? What does that look like for me, God, to use my time, talents, and treasures? What does that look like for me to invest my life into the kingdom? What does it look like for me to love my community, to love my neighbors? And then do it. You might not get a lightning bolt from the sky. What you do have is the Word of God. And the apostles didn't just stick to this on Sunday mornings. They did it all the time. Every conversation they were having was reorienting people around what the Word of God said. So let's be those kind of people. Let's be the kind of people like Barnabas that when he arrives and he sees God's grace all around him, he encourages other people. And whenever they are believers, he he says, listen, you've got to stay true to this. That's what's going to change the world is authentic followers of Jesus. And in Antioch, it's the first time they were ever called Christians. And whenever they first got called Christians, I'm sure the meaning was a little different than it is today. For being honest, we know it's probably lost its meaning. It's a politicized term now. So to be a follower of Jesus in our culture... What does it look like? Well, I think it looks a lot like Jesus. And I think that's who we're called to be. 
But praise the Lord, his mercy is more. We have his mercy and grace to fall back on. When we don't get this right, when we don't hit it out of the park, every day we can come back to him. We can get more mercy, more grace, and then we can be the Barnabases and Sauls of this world to entrench ourselves in our communities and see disciples made and be witnesses to truth. God, thank you for that grace and mercy that is so freely given to us. We are so undeserving, but we are thankful. So God, thank you for this time that's been set aside today for us to just open your word, and I pray that uh, your word is doing its work. Regardless of the messenger, regardless of the atmosphere, Lord, we ask that you were here in this place and that you're moving in hearts. Lord, if there are those here that haven't committed their lives to you or received that amazing blessing of forgiveness, I pray that whatever is standing in their way would would get removed in this moment. That the walls that have been built up would fall down and that your love and grace and mercy would win and that the heavens would rejoice. Lord, what a beautiful, beautiful thing your truth is and what a beautiful gift your church is. So I pray that when we open the doors and we leave this place, the world sees the beauty of your gospel through your people that are right here in this place right now and the communities surrounding us would be transformed. And then we step in, we say, I see the evidence of God's grace and I am glad and then encourage them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts, that people would see us as as good people, not just good as in our behavior, but people who just genuinely have the love of Jesus in us, and we show it to those around us. And because of those things, we see a great many people brought to the Lord. So give us your strength, give us your mercy, and allow us the privilege of doing your work.